Before we begin, I wanted to make a quick correction about last week's episode. When I was sharing the update on the Ethan Couch case, I mistakenly said he was responsible for the deaths of four teenagers. That was incorrect. Ethan Couch was the driver, and there were seven other teens in his truck, several of whom were injured, with one, Sergio Molina, who became paralyzed due to the accident. The victims who were killed were Brianna Mitchell, age 24, who had pulled her car over to the side of the road after having car trouble, Holly Boyles, 52, and his daughter Shelby, age 21, and Brian Jennings, a 43-year-old father, who'd also stopped to help. I apologize for the mistake. All the correct detailed information on the case can be heard in episode 83 from March 2018. I should have reviewed all the details before I recorded the updated information on the case. I will be more careful to do so in the future. Thank you. Now, on to the show. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you all for joining me once again for Once Upon a Crime. And this time, as I promised you guys, I'm going to have a special episode. We're having some special episodes here in December, like I like to do for the end of the year. And today I'm really excited because I'm going to be talking about a case that I learned about a long time ago, and it was always stayed on my mind, but I really haven't heard anybody else talk about it very much. Um, And I decided the perfect guest to help me with this story would be Erica Kelly from Southern Fried True Crime. Hey, Erica, how you doing? Hey there, I'm good. How are you? Good. So, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit why I decided Erica would be a great person, because this is a little bit of a Southern Fried story, I think. Um, and... For this sure. is a story about uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, and we'll talk about who that is. You guys probably know the name, right? I mean, I'm not the only old timer around here, I hope, <laughs> that knows that name. But he is a legendary musician. Um, he is from the South. And this story, um, I became interested in this story about the mysterious death of his fifth wife, Sean Lewis, a long time ago, and I don't know exactly when, but I remember reading this article, and there's this uh, really awesome article written by a journalist by the name of Richard Ben Kramer. He wrote this for Rolling Stone back in 1984, and the name of the article was The Strange and Mysterious Death of Mrs. Jerry Lee Lewis. So when I see a title like that of an article, I don't know about you, Erica, but I have to read it. <laughs> like, oh, what is this about, right? I love the Rolling Stone. Like, uh, I, there's so much good stuff there. Yes. Yeah, they have some awesome journalists. Again, like I said, I was really surprised about it because I didn't know anything about this story. Well, I really don't know a lot about Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, I know a little bit of his songs because, you know, they played on the radio or you see them in movies a lot. Did you watch the movie, uh, Great Balls of Fire? Yes, I did watch it. And I watched that, (laughs) I think it was later after, I'm not sure when it was, but I know it it wasn't when it first came out. And I did watch it. It was was a huge, uh, I am still a huge Winona Ryder fan, but um, I think I knew a little bit more about Jerry Lee Lewis because I come from a family of musicians and my dad is one of those freaks that could play um, by ear. He didn't read music, but he could do every Jerry Lee Lewis song. Like, and that was always the fun part of a party. So I knew about him. And then that movie came out and I was just like, what? But I never knew about the the dead wife. I'm going to have Erica tell you a little bit about his background and his life. Um, but that movie really was based on the book written by his very young wife, Myra, 
right? And um, and so it pretty much told that part of his life. He was married several times, obviously. I said that was his fifth wife. So he was married more times than that. I'm going to go ahead and let Erica tell us a little bit about Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, we'll go from there. All right. Well, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, he was born in Faraday, Louisiana in 1935, September, um, to a poor farming family. He started playing piano at a very young age um, with two cousins who would become extremely famous in their own right, Mickey Gilley, um, who was a country music singer, and of course, uh, Jimmy Swaggart, the television evangelist who was, you know, that was a surprise to me. And Jimmy Swigert was his cousin. That's yeah. I, I want to say that like the only reason I remember that is because it was in that movie too. But um, because <laughs> okay. no, I didn't Alec remember Baldwin. that part. Yeah, I think Alec Baldwin played Jimmy Swigert. I could be wrong. Really? Okay, now I'm gonna have to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> that movie, like part of it feels so fictional, and then the more you dig into it, like no, it's actually a lot of it was pretty real. So, but yeah, Jerry Lee began playing and singing gospel music at the age of nine. Um, he was raised in the assembly of God church, but he was also heavily influenced by country music, R and B, and of course, rock. Uh, he liked to blend these genres with his own unique version of rockabilly, which would catch on with young audiences in the 1950s. Um, and you know, this kind of created a dichotomy within Jerry Lee because throughout his life, he's, he remained in conflict between his Christian roots and his love of rock and roll. Um, he even attended the Southwest Bible Institute, but at a church assembly, he played a worldly version of the gospel song, My God is Real, and was expelled. <laughs> he returned to Louisiana and started playing in honky tonks. His energy and showmanship on stage combined with his virtuoso piano playing, earned him a reputation as an up-and-coming star in the local rock and roll scene. What you said about his being conflicted with the the Christian roots and then the rock, that was pretty common back then, right? Because I'm thinking of like Johnny Cash, right? Didn't he start playing gospel? I think a lot of those guys did. I mean, it was the Bible Belt, correct? Uh, Well, and ironically, my dad was the same way. I mean, raised in the church and, but, you know, you grew up in the well, he was born in the 50s, but grew up in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, you know, he was kind of weaned on gospel and country, but then kind of turned away from it. Whereas I think, you know, people of Jerry Lee and Johnny Cash generation struggled with it even more. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I love, like when you talk about his showmanship, I mean, it's not just, you can watch that one movie and actually Dennis Quaid does a really good job of doing it. But if you ever see a video of him, like kicking away the piano stool and going after it, like it's incredible. There's, you know... There's just no two ways about it. He was really, really great. Yeah. yeah I, th- I think that's really interesting. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with his, uh, I don't want to psychoanalyze him. <laughs> you, we can do that later, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So he cut his first demo in 1954 and moved to Nashville where he played in clubs and bars. Uh, he was unable to secure an invitation to perform at the Grand Ole Opry. So he continued to play in Memphis, where he auditioned for Sun Records. And he began as um, basically a studio musician. Like a, um, he, was, he was a backer for big names like Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash, like we talked about. So the Grand Ole um, Opry, though, and that, that's kind of like the holy grail of, of you know. It is. It is. Yeah, at the Grand Ole Opry, you really, you really have to do the country. You can't go crazy. You can't be kicking out barstools and making it rock and roll at least not back then um you know what I mean so I I can see why he would not have fit in but while he was still a huge hit in Memphis because that's you know Memphis and Knoxville like were were also really big for blues and rock and roll so that, that makes a lot of sense to me and his solo career began with Jerry Lee Lewis and his pumping piano in 1957 
Um, the songs that became hits, which I think everybody knows the biggest one, Great Balls of Fire, that's what the movie's named after, mm-hmm. but also a whole lot of shaking going on. His high energy and flamboyant style. I mean, fans just loved him. I mean, this was, you know, this was a little bit pre-Beatles and, you know, a little bit around, a little bit before Elvis Presley, but he he definitely evoked the same kind of fanaticism in his audience. You know, this the the ladies loved him. Everybody screamed. It was, you know, it was new. I mean, before Elvis the Pelvis, there was this too. And, you know, it was basically kicking off a whole new generation of those kind of shocking musicians. They're not shocking to us now. We've seen it all, right. but then that but was incredible. Did your parents have um, like record albums when you were a kid that you used to look at the covers of them and that kind of thing? Oh yeah. Yeah. I still have most of mine. I unfortunately had a house party when I was like 22 and Oddly enough, somebody stole all the records, but not the album covers. Oh my god! I don't know. Isn't that awful? I would rather you just take the whole thing. It made me so angry. But actually, now I'm kind of now you know what you have. You know what you don't have, right? I know, but at least I think I'm going to actually frame them one day because I mean I've got a lot of really cool um, original album covers that most people. And that's what I was going to say. So I remember looking at these album covers, and you know, before like say the late '50s, early '60s, it looked everybody looked the same. They're wearing like cardigan sweaters and ties and you know, that kind of thing. And so it was much more like, I don't know, calm, acceptable, I guess, music. Well, it was buttoned down. It was formulaic. And there was a certain formula for a boy band or for a musician. And, you know, aside from just like, you know, the kicking of the piano bench and um, I believe he stood on top of the piano and things like that. uh, He got a lot of criticism from radio stations for his antics. And they often refused to play his music and, and said he was obscene, which... Looking back, like I, I remember they called Elvis the pelvis obscene, but when you actually listen to the lyrics of the songs, like I don't see how they could call that obscene. But I mean, <laughs> I mean you can't compare it to today, but yeah, then it was pretty, uh, pretty risque, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And then, um, of course, well, Jerry Lee, as we have established, was very hot with the ladies, and he wasn't a ladies' man, and he was also the marrying kind. He wed for the first time when he was just 16. And that marriage only lasted for 20 months. Once his divorce was finalized, he was already moving on to wife number two. Her name was Jane Mitchum. They were married for four years and had two children, Jerry Lee Jr. in 1954 and Ronnie Guy in 1956. And unfortunately, Jerry Lee Jr. died in a car accident when he was 19. One of the things we're going to see here with... um... Jerry Lee is that he he gets I mean divorced and remarried so quickly like sometimes the divorce is even final, finalized yet before he's on to the next overlap overlap yeah. for sure yeah. yeah he get married at sixteen dude like <laughs> you know and the thing of it like that actually wasn't all that strange back then but it, mm-hmm. it's a good lead into his next marriage because mm-hmm. you know like, people getting married at sixteen was not as unusual and horrifying as we would think of it as now however his next marriage would be um his next marriage was to his 13 year old cousin Myra Gail Brown and it wasn't just that uh, she was 13 she was also his first cousin and that is actually um it's so strange I was actually reading about this the other day that's actually still legal in many states you can still marry your first cousin it's it's legal in many parts of western civilization um there's not nearly as much I guess stigma and worries of birth defects as there were but I mean back then it wasn't just that she was 13 it was also that she was his cousin um yeah and by this time he was how old he was in his 20s, right? 22, 23, something like that. Yeah, I can't math on my head. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Uh, yeah, still, I mean, come on, 22, 23 to 13, that's quite it. Well, it's quite the age difference, but I'm just going to go ahead and say at 22, you're still really not making the best decisions. Um, <laughs> especially someone like him who, you know, they say about a lot of people, and especially what you would consider child stars and considering his early success, you know, you kind of almost get stuck at that age where you became famous. And so he, he, he remained kind of a child man in that way, I think. Yeah, okay, so that was December of 57 that he married his 13-year-old cousin. And the next spring, he went on tour in Europe, and the press caught wind of it, which um, I think it had kind of been hushed down in the U.S. from what I remember. It's not like it wasn't known, but nobody made such a big deal out of it. But it became a public outrage in Europe when um, when it was found out and the rest of the tour was canceled. He was sent back to the U S in disgrace. And then of course, after he got back, the U S was like, Oh, well, of course, you know, the British thought it was terrible. Now we really refused to play his records and all his TV appearances were canceled. Um, he, it really, really did hurt his career. He had to kind of turn his sights back to country music, which was not really his passion. But, um, in the late 1960s, he did have a few hits on the country charts. And then he recorded more country albums into the 70s that became hits. He actually scored 17 top 10 hits on the country charts between 1968 and 1977, which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at. No, yeah, he he became a a pretty big star in the 70s, correct? I mean, especially in country music. And I guess by then, you know, people forgot Myra grew up. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to remember how long they stayed married. Um, They did have two children. Mm -hmm. They had one. So they, oh my God, she had a baby in... 59 and they married at 57. So she had a baby at 15. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's the first child. And then they didn't have another um, baby until 1963. So six years later. So it was at least 21 when she had the second one. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, Jerry Lee lost another child um, and Mara did as well. Steve Allen uh, drowned in their swimming pool at the age of three. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, yeah. And they were still married uh, for about seven more years. They divorced in 1970. Myra cited physical and mental abuse as well as adultery in her reasoning for filing. Yeah, I don't think he was a very loyal man <laughs> to his wife. No, I don't think anybody would ever accuse him of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not at all. Um, Jerry Lee, early on in his career, earned the nickname The Killer uh, for much of his frenzied piano playing as much for his temper. Um, And it wasn't just the, yeah, you know, kicking over of piano benches. You know, he liked to smash beer bottles on stage and he picked fights famously with lots of famous people. It was, and Myra wrote in her book that was made into that film, Great Balls of Fire, that there were many instances that Jerry Lee would come home drunk and stoned on pills and he would beat her. He was extremely jealous and possessive and um, pretty much all of his exes would, would report that he had beat them as well as cheated on him during their marriages. Uh, uh, the beating is bad enough, but he was a serial adulterer. Yeah. Um, he also had a really bad history of being reckless with weapons. Um, yeah. He had easily threatened people who angered him by waving guns around. And in 1971, he, I'm going to put quote unquote, accidentally shot <laughs> a bass player because he hit him in the chest. Right. <laughs> so it's a miracle the dude lived. Um, uh, while waving around his gun recklessly. Uh, the musician sued, but um, as usual, Jerry Lee Lewis got out of it. Uh, it's yeah. a miracle he lived, though, getting shot in the chest that way. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't his only uh, high-profile instance with a weapon. In 1976, he showed up at Elvis's home at Graceland. He was high on pills and drunk on champagne, and he crashed his Lincoln Continental into the gates of the Graceland mansion. 
Um, he had placed a loaded pistol on the dashboard and was swigging from a champagne bottle. And then he attempted to hurl the bottle out the car's window as he drove up to the house, smashing the window and the bottle. And Elvis was actually watching from inside the home on a closed circuit camera. And he called the Memphis police who arrested Jerry Lee Lewis for public drunkenness and a weapons charge. And he was released on a $250 bond, which of course that sounds like nothing. I, I don't really, I don't know. Oh, 10 made, bucks for him, right? What today's money is, but that really still was peanuts even back then. Um, yeah. Yeah. For him, especially. Cause you know, he was pretty, oh, yeah. pretty well, well I, don't dude. I, I don't remember. I should have looked that up too, but I mean, I'm pretty sure he, 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 he gained and lost several portions too. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then a year after Myra divorced him, he married a woman named uh, Jaron Gunn Lewis. In 1972, she gave birth to their daughter, Lori Lee. And they were married until 1982. And it never ceases to astonish me how long these women stay married to him. Yeah. Um, it, you know, Myra and the other, like it, it was several years of it. They're, they He definitely had a hold over them, whether it was, emotional, financial, real love, whatever it was, he, he did manage to, to stay married for... Well, I did, I did read a little bit about Myra and her, her marriage to Jerry Lee because it's just fascinating to me. Like, it is to me too. One of, the, one of the stories was that when she left to marry him, that the only thing she had big enough to, to put her clothes in to take with her was a dollhouse. So she oh, took her dollhouse good. packed with clothes to her wedding to this 22 or 23 year old guy, which is crazy. And the other thing that she said is that he basically left her with his mother and sister to, you know, he was on the road. She said she counts like three nights that he was actually home during their marriage. Wow. That, that he was never there. So that may be how they could stay long enough because he just wasn't there. She said when he was, even when he was in town, he was out all night, you know, playing gigs and then out partying and yeah. she just didn't see him. It was almost like his, she was another sister, at least to his mother. You know what I mean? Like the mother raised her. Well, as young as she was. Yeah, yeah, of course. Between the touring and the partying and everything else, that makes a lot of sense. After the divorce petition in 1982, actually the petition would state that he, quote, had an extremely violent temper, especially when he becomes intoxicated on alcohol and or drugs, and that he had choked the plaintiff on numerous occasions, beaten her, knocked her down the stairs, and threatened her life. I um, mean, this is everything that Jaron said. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty damning. She didn't just file for irreconcilable differences. Right. Um, and that, that was probably a big part of the problem because she was looking for a lot of support. Uh, the petition further stated that a month before the divorce filing, she had contacted Jerry Lee to ask for financial assistance for her and their daughter. And he became angry, according to Jaron, and told her that she shouldn't worry about support because, quote, you're not going to be around very long. If you don't get off my back, you will end up in the bottom of a lake at the farm with chains on you. And then on June 8th, 1982, right before their divorce settlement was final, Jaron Lewis was found dead, drowned at the bottom of a swimming pool. Yeah, which was, there's not a lot of information about that. I can't even see that that one was ever even investigated. I no. think it was just in the media. And, oh, this was accidental. Do you know that I guess <laughs> they didn't bother to look into the divorce and the accusations. It was just considered an accidental death. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, just very strange coincidence if, you know, if that's what it was, that that's yes. how she died. But well, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of... You have two I mean, people in your family that died in a pool. I'm not claiming that he killed his son, but that is quite a coincidence. Like I would think I wouldn't have a pool at that point in my life. You know what I mean? Like I'd get rid of, of the pool, but I he always had that. a pool. 
<laughs> but yeah, I know. And rich people usually do, but like, I think after that kind of tragedy of losing a child, I'd be done with it too. But either yeah. way, what are the odds of two people drowning in your pool at home? Like that's right. Very strange. Know. Yes. So what happens at this point in his life is like, he's going through this contentious divorce with uh, Jaren and she's, she seems like she's a pretty assertive woman because she wasn't just going to walk away like other women in his life. Um, she was really kind of fighting him for financial support and alimony and all those things and taking care of, you know, the kids. And he just basically wanted to be done with her. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And uh, this is why she had to you know, call him and say, hey, you know, you need to give us some money here. We, we need, you know, money to live off of and you, your kids. And, and he just got really angry about it. Basically, leave me alone or, you know, or else. But at the same time, while he was going through this, the other thing too, during this time, he was also going through famously, because there's a lot of in history about this written about all of his tax problems. And so <laughs> that was the other portion of it that, so all of these things were going on at the same time. And then right around the same time is when he meets Sean. Sean Stevens was a much younger woman than Jerry Lee at the time. She was a, a petite beauty and she was from Dearborn, Michigan. So she was a Yankee. And that's what he used to call her. She was a Yankee. Because, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, she was from the North. After graduating from high school in 1975, she worked various jobs around her hometown, worked fast food restaurants. She was a server. She was an office, did office help. And then after she turned 21, she became a cocktail waitress at the Hyatt Regency Hotel. She made friends with the other her coworkers, managers. Everybody liked her. By all accounts, she was just a really um, nice girl. Yeah. And she was described by everybody as just very high energy. She was very fun. She was a little flirty, you know. But she did have a longtime boyfriend named Scott, who um, I'm not sure, I think it might have been her high school boyfriend. He was, uh, he went on to working in a factory, he was a factory worker. And she really loved Scott. Scott was the love of her life. And she wanted to marry him. She thought they were going to get married. But for some reason, his family didn't like her that much. Um, he, they thought that he could do better. And it really discouraged the romance. And it kind of sounds like Scott was a little bit of a mama's boy. It sounded to me like he might have had a little bit of a controlling mother or something like that. And, yeah. you know, you know, one of those moms, maybe, maybe she's one of those no, no girl's good for my boy or kind of thing. Who knows, right? You know what? They're still around to this day. So, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Sean, you know, she's there. She starts meeting people at the Hyatt. Now, the, uh, the Hyatt was, like I said, a cocktail lounge. And they would have musical acts that would come in and they would play you know, play gigs there. And uh, so the musician, there was always musicians around that would perform at the hotel. And, uh, you know, they saw these cute girls, these, you know, cocktail servers, and they would invite them afterwards to parties, right? The parties at the hotel or parties at the clubs or whatever. And this was, of course, it's going to be fun for a 21-year-old girl. Of course, this is like, wow, you know, from a, from a, a small town where, you know, you work at restaurants and you work in factories and here's these, these guys and they've got some money and they want to spend them on these you know, pretty girls and stuff. So they, she would go out with her friends and go to these parties and, and hang out with these, these uh, musicians, right? So some of the girls started dating some of these band members and some of the crew that would come into town. Her friend, uh, Pam Brewer, began a relationship with J.W. Witten, who was the band manager, longtime band manager for Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, they actually became engaged. And Sean started seeing that things were a little different now for her friend. She was traveling with her boyfriend who had a lot of money and they were, would travel by private jet. He would buy her expensive clothes. She got to hang out with celebrities and all of those things. 
And of course, you know, to Sean, this seems like a great life. Wow. You know, you're just being treated like a queen, right? Well, to anybody. And then think about how young she was. Like, oh, yeah. Of course. I mean, and that had to be, you know, she obviously came from humble beginnings. Like, it's not that she was great rich herself. So, yeah, I can imagine how yeah. exciting that is. And just, and just a lot of fun, right? At that age. Yeah. I mean, I mean, come yeah. on. I remember when I was 21. It's like, I wasn't trying to like go for a career. <laughs> I was like, why didn't hang out with my friends? Yeah, no, I was still bartending at 21. This is another thing like I kind of related to. I worked in a big hip hop bar and yeah, I met lots of weirdos and (laughs) celebrities and famously, I cannot think of the band's name, but they were the guys that did, they had, they were one hit wonders because I got high. (laughs) Okay. They hilariously took like half our staff into their, uh, into their, into their van and got everybody stoned and nobody, nobody could hardly finish their shift. So yeah, (laughs) come in and everybody is just starstruck. And so you can only imagine how a young girl that, you know, she, she didn't grow up that way. She, she wasn't around celebrities. She didn't know. And that's the, that's the thing I was going to say about Sean, because everything that I read about her and things that her family would say later is that she seemed like she was a girl that, you know, she wanted to have a good time and have fun, but she was, she was no worldly person at all. Like she, she was kind of really out of her element when she was in these circles of people. Um, you know, she's just a hometown girl. She just wanted to get married to her boyfriend and have a family and live a normal life. But then this, all of this other stuff kind of swept into her life. And I think she kind of got caught up in it but I don't think that she was at all, um, she was very young and naive, you know, so I can see where this is going to take a turn because, you know, now she's going to meet Jerry Lee Lewis. So you can also see how it's almost kind of like, um, a rebound thing. You know, if if the love of my life and his parents don't think we should get married, you know what? Well, here's this great, cool guy that I just met. Like he's super famous and rich. So yeah, of course he's going to turn her head. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's exactly what happened. So in February 1981, Jerry Lee's uh, band was booked to play for a week at the Hyatt, and he saw, you know, pretty petite Sean, and he asked about her. So she wasn't expecting to date this guy. He was, you know, she was 23 years old. She was half of his age, but her friend Pam, because she was dating his band manager and actually engaged to his pa- band manager, um, Pam encouraged her to meet him, and she invited Sean to a party in this hotel room. Just like you said, she was thinking, hey, I'm no closer to getting married to Scott. And she thought, well, you know, why not have some fun, right? So she went to the party where Jerry Lee really paid her special attention that night. He really kind of turned on the charm. And by all accounts, he could be charming, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, of course, he's playing the piano. He's singing a song directly to her. You know, that's got to make a feel, you know, a young girl like her who hasn't been around much feel pretty special, right? Yeah. So she was flattered to have his attention, but to be honest, she said that he, yeah, he's an old dude, right? <laughs> you know, you're 23, he's 46 or 45, whatever he was. She even thought he might be a good match for her mom. She was like, I'm going to go home and tell my mom about him. <laughs> so, you know, he's talking, talking it up and saying, hey, you should come with us to Memphis and we're going to play another gig there. Um, and he in- invited her to come. So she said, well, that sounds like fun. Her friend Pam was going to be going, so she decided to go. But he was also about to embark on a tour to Europe. Now think about that, man. You get it, you know, he, and then he invites her to come along to Europe. God's sakes. I mean, you would think, she might think, I might never have another opportunity, right? Of course so, not. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So she totally accepted. You know, she accepted, she went. 
And he started showering her with gifts and treated her like a princess. I mean, she's on a private jet. She's going to all these, you know, she's staying in these five-star hotel. I mean, it's just a great life, right? Yeah. And he's really good to her at first. Um, yeah. And this was, this was Jerry Lee's also, um, his pattern, is that okay. he, he would meet these girls and he'd be, you know, awesome and amazing and charming and, you know, you're the love of my life and all of this stuff. What we'll see is that as soon as, you know, he has them, you know, either married to them or they're living with him or whatever, he turns and he becomes very uh, possessive and jealous Mm -hmm. and angry um, and threatened all the time. He just feels threatened all the time uh, for whatever reason. Um, Plus the fact that he did have substance abuse problems. So he liked to take pills, a lot of uppers before he performed. And then he'd be up all night. You know, he wouldn't, of course, after the gig's over, He's still he's still up, so it's time to go have a party. And he expected Sean, as his new girlfriend, to stay awake with him. So she was kind of stuck in that mode. But then he takes her to live with him. So he has his house, and you know he has his mansion basically. And this again, there's there's a pool in his backyard, but this one's shaped like a piano. I think that was in the movie, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I I thought I remembered something about a piano. We might have mixed that up a bit because I'm not sure that's actually where Myra lived. Yeah, no, I don't think so. But, you know, that was, I think that was a famous story that he has this pool shaped like a piano. So they had to throw that in there somewhere. So Sean, you know, he loved to lay out by the pool sunbathing while Jerry Lee, he would sleep off his hangover from the night before. And then they'd get ready and go out to the club. He'd take her out to the clubs because, I mean, he basically was partying every single night, right? I don't know how many years you can do that. You know, it just seems like it would be rough. Richard, he's going to outlive us all. I guess it depends on the on your drug of choice. Yeah, I it's think in- he's Richard, Richard's is pickled at this point. So That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I think it depends on the drug and, and, and what you're doing. But I mean, isn't Jerry Lee still alive? Yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. It's very amazing. <laughs> it's like, so, you know, he'd sleep, he'd be asleep. Then, like I said, they go to the clubs. Um, the favorite place to go was a place called Hernando's Hideaway in Memphis. And there was a lot of very famous stories about antics of Jerry Lee at Hernando's Hideaway in Memphis, because that was like his home place that he yeah, would hang that's out. Not, that's probably, Nesbitt must be pretty close to Memphis. And, and, you know, it was reported that he would always start ready to party, having a good time. But the more he drank, the worse his mood got. And like you said earlier, he would often pick fights with whoever was around. And everyone knew that Jerry carried weapons. No one wanted to cross him. He was a very mean drunk. You know, it wasn't even just weapons. He just always picked fights. I mean, he was a skinny guy his whole life. I guess you call that lanky. Yes, that was the word. (laughs) (laughs) So Sean was just one of these people that she was just a nice girl. She liked to keep things calm. She was good at kind of talking him down. You know, she could, she learned how to read his moods. Now that's pretty typical of somebody who's in an abusive relationship, right? Yes, very much. Mm -hmm. So she learned how to read his moods. She could, sometimes she could calm him down. At other times, she just you know, stayed quiet and tried to stay out of the, in a line of fire when he was yeah. really out of control. Which is smart. Yeah. But she was also, they said, no pushover. The women was, were always coming on to him. And she didn't like that at all. She wasn't going to put up with other women trying to come on to, to her, you know, her famous boyfriend. There was one, one time at a restaurant, they were out having dinner and this woman came up and asked for her autograph and then he gave it to her. And then, you know, of course she was kind of smiling at him and this and that. And she came back again and, she, and he's, you know, he's chatting her up too. He's enjoying the attention. Um, she came back a third time. And at that point, Sean was like, okay, that's it. So she grabbed the woman by the hair and just like, pushed her out of, away from her, from Jerry Lee and said, hey, this is my man. He's with me tonight. Get the hell out of here. 
Um, and he, you know, Jerry Lee, he he lapped this all up. He enjoyed seeing his you know, I was just gonna girlfriend. Say, he must have loved that. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, he's fighting a, another woman over him, of course, yeah. right? I mean, ego. <laughs> Absolutely. So the first summer that she was living with Jerry Lee, um, her 20-year-old sister, Shelly, came for a visit. So she had driven down from Michigan with their brother, Thomas, who also brought along a friend named David Lipke. Um, Jerry Lee saw these, you know, one was her brother, but one was another guy, you know, his friend. And he no, immediately became not. angry and jealous. Again, he always felt threatened by any anybody around his, you know, his woman, right? Which is so stupid when you think about it. He's the star. Right. You know, like, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here that how much younger they would have been would have been a problem, but really, I don't think the age would have mattered. He was just always jealous. Yeah, he just always was. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, he became angry. He he was accusing Shelly, his sister Shelly, of trying to set up Sean with this guy, David. But Shelly would also report that Jerry Lee was kind of hinting around at having, wanting to have a threesome with her and her sister. Ugh. And and it's just gross. And Shelly is just like, she said, I refuse to have any part of it. Now, I don't, it doesn't seem from what I read that, um, that Sean would have been okay with that either. You know, well, I mean, like, I'm not trying to kink shame when I grave that. Ugh, like, but there's nothing <laughs> wrong with threesomes between consenting adults. We're talking about sisters here. Sisters, oh, yeah. Come on, that's oh. an extra level of ick. So, I mean, um, cousin, I don't know why I'm shocked, but still, <laughs> yeah. But then after she basically said no thanks, he got really angry and started turning on both of them and becoming very mean. Um, he said she, Shelley reported that he began yelling at Sean at that point and telling her to make her guests leave his house. Um, and then Sean, of course, being, you know, no wallflower sometimes said, hey, if they're leaving, then I'm leaving too. So that was it, right? So um, they all piled into their brother's car and they said, she says that Jerry Lee was inside just going ape shit in the house. Then he started accusing them of trying to, of stealing from the house, stealing from him. And then this is the most ridiculous part. She says he accused them of taking his jet ski. He goes, I was driving a Camaro. We were driving a Camaro. We had no tow thing. Where, where the hell did he think it was? Anyway, he watched them leave. Of course, they weren't towing anything. She said, but they were afraid because I guess Sean was saying, hey, you know, he might shoot us from the window. Um, and so they were ducking down in the car as they drove away. I think maybe at this point she cared about him in some way or something yeah. because she did try to like call him a couple days. I mean, she could have just went home and that could have been the end of it, right? Yeah. But she tried to call him a couple days later, talk some sense in him, um, but he just really wasn't, he wouldn't hear it. He was still pissed, right? Yeah. But we also know that he was sick a lot uh, with stomach pain. Well, he had a terrible life. So I don't know if he had some other illness going on on top of that, but he had a terrible lifestyle. And then he had started, when he started having the stomach pain, some point in his life, started injecting himself with these, uh, with really strong narcotics in his stomach to relieve the pain. Um, and he, of course, he was addicted to whatever that narcotic was as well. Um, but around that summer, that pain was getting really, really bad. And on uh, the 4th of July, he was rushed to the hospital. And this is the the scene where he famously almost dies. And he was diagnosed with a, a perforation of the stomach. So at that point, he underwent emergency surgery, but the prognosis was not good. It was reported that he had less than a 50% chance of surviving. One of the things we'll see about Jerry Lee Lewis is like the guy has nine lives, man. Um, he, he recovered. You know, it took a while, but he recovered. So by the end of that summer in August, he had gotten over the worst of this illness, and he at that point started calling Sean. And yeah. by this time, she had moved. She was um, she had, you know she had gone home in Michigan, but 
for some reason, they, her and her sister made a move to Texas, and also her boy, her you know ex boyfriend Scott had moved there too. They were all living together in a house in Texas some, uh, for some reason, and I guess maybe they're trying to give their relationship a shot again, but it didn't end up it didn't end up working out. And then by the end of that summer, right when Jerry Lee started calling, she was on her way back to Michigan, and uh, you know he started. It was just the timing. I was just going to say that timing, like if things had been going well in Texas, she might not have gone back to him. Exactly. So, you know, he starts apologizing for the past. He promises her everything, of course. And then he tells her he wants to marry her. As soon as his divorce from Jared, his fourth wife is final. Um, He wasn't, like I said, he was in the middle of divorce when all this was going on. Um, At the time she said, no, she wasn't ready to do that. But he kept calling and, you know, talking to her and she was talking to him, taking his calls. He was still trying to win her back. So by the time that winter came in Michigan, and I can imagine it's friggin' freezing <laughs> in Michigan <laughs> in the winter, um, you know, she started looking at her life and saying, wait a minute, you know, this is not what I signed up for. I thought it was going to be a little different than this. Um, she was, you know, back in her home, her hometown. She was working as a secretary. Uh, Scott still, you know, wasn't, that wasn't happening. They weren't looking at getting married or, you know, that, the family thing, all of that that whole idea that she had of a dream wasn't happening. Um, yeah, everything was going nowhere with with the one I think she thought was her backup. Yeah. Their, her original love. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a long, cold winter. So the timing was right when he came to town. He picks her up in a limousine and he um, proposes again. You know, he, he's, he does all the right things, right? So now she starts seriously thinking about saying yes. Um, and of course, this is at this point, he is going through the contentious divorce from Jaren. And he wasn't yet free to marry, but he's already saying, I'm going to marry you. As soon as this is done, you know, I'm going to marry you. Then on June 8th, 1982, Jaren's found dead. That's, you know, she was the one that drowned in the pool. Right. Um, and she was at a friend's house. This is really, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I didn't catch earlier. I was thinking it was in his pool. No. So like, odds of two people drowning in your own home pool. Okay. Well, I mean, still, how, what are the odds of two people you love and know drowning in a pool? But still, that's, ugh. Yeah. She was, yeah, she was at a friend's home and, and, but she was alone. So it's just a really odd thing. And it would just remain a mystery. Like we just, they just basically said it was an accidental drowning and that was the end of it. Um, I wonder if he ever like even checked blood alcohol or anything like that. Like, I mean, I know he was never implicated in her death, but you just have to wonder. Yeah, no, it it is, it is very strange, but now he was free. Right. Um, And, but Sean was still holding out. She wasn't ready to say yes quite yet. Um, But then the following year, he was booked for tour dates in Europe. And this was in early 1983. So he went, you know, he took off, went to Europe. He was gone. I'm sure he was calling her and saying, you know, what was going on. And he was having a good time. I, he, I think she may have gone a couple of times just to go hang out with him. Right. But when he returned to the U.S., um, at this point, she finally agreed to become wife number five. Now, her friends would re- later report that she was not in love with him. She said she was not in love with him. But she told them, I'm not crazy about the man, but I've never had this kind of life. She said, saw this, I guess, as her best opportunity, even though she yeah. knew. I'm not sure she saw the danger then. Like, was, you know, we don't know for sure that he was already smacking her around and stuff that yeah. he did otherwise. I mean, yeah. So, I think it was just it. mostly showing his temper, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And she thought, well, I could, I could deal with that. And also, frankly, when you're young, I'm, I don't know about you, but I, I've been there. You know, the guy that's jealous and possessive, like it's almost kind of a thing. You're like, oh my God, he loves me so much. When yeah. you're young, you don't know any better. And yeah, if he had never been abusive, I, I, I can understand her feelings. But it's yeah. 
Scott later said that Sean called him two days before the wedding was scheduled to ask him if he would consider getting back together with her. So obviously she was not all in on this thing. Again, you know, it it is sad, right? According to him, she said, if you just say the word, I'd come back. But he said he wouldn't consider it since everyone knew she'd left him for this old man and he could not forgive that and he would never live it down. So it just was never going to happen. Great with a male pride. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think he would have got back with her anyway. I think that I was... Don't, you know, obviously, she'd given it how many years at this point? They, she had, what, didn't she graduate in 75? And this Yeah. Is, like, she's waited eight years now, and he still has not proposed or done anything. I mean, can you blame her? No. So on June 7th, 1983, Sean Stevens married Jerry Lee Lewis at his home in Nesbitt, Mississippi. Um, her family came for the wedding, of course. Uh, Sean had insisted that they fly. and They were going to drive from Michigan. And she said, no, 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 you know, fly down. And she promised that her new husband would fly them home in his Learjet, which is kind of a nice offer, right? Yeah. Um, But the morning after the wedding vows were exchanged, now this is, again, this is a pattern. As second now, she is his wife. So now things change, right? Morning after the wedding vows were exchanged, Jerry Lee uh, got drunk and was very angry at Sean's family's presence in his home. Like, he's like, what are they doing here? Get the hell out. You know, just being a jerk. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And he also didn't like Shelly. He always he had a problem with Shelly. And she says it's because I wouldn't have sex with him. I, say, I guess because he wasn't down for she wasn't down for a threesome with her sister. I mean, how dare her? Right. Right. <laughs> so he didn't like Shelly. So he came in when she was in there with not in front of her family with Shelly was in another room. Uh, Jerry Lee started yelling at her and then he slapped her. Now, he's totally like crossed the line big time at this point. Mm-hmm. But Shelly didn't want, she didn't want to tell her father. She was afraid that she, well, she knew that he was going to go after this guy and it could be, get dangerous and she didn't want that. She's figuring, let's avoid a fight with this new son-in-law of his. So she only told Sean about what had happened. So Sean took the family, filed them in the car and drove them to a hotel where she booked rooms for them. And basically at this point, they just had to leave because he was just not being a very nice person. That's also just like, it's really sad. I mean, he's such a freaking bully. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he could be, he knew that he had power over this family. You know, he had his, his, their daughter was his wife and he had the money and they didn't. And there was all this kind of stuff going on. So just an ugly, an ugly family thing going on here. But now they were stranded and they didn't have plane tickets home and they had no money. They tried to rent a car to drive to Michigan, but they didn't have enough money for that. Finally, they didn't have any choice. They had to ask Jerry Lee for a loan to get home. And then, of course, again, the bully thing comes out. He's like, I don't want your money. Your money's no good to me, blah, blah, blah. What do I care about that? You know, so he sends Sean to the hotel with $1,000 cash to give them to get the hell out of town. Um, you know, Sean was just, she was humiliated. And her family said she was just distraught. She was crying. Yeah. You know, it's embarrassing. You know? That's what I'm saying. Also, it's supposed to be your wedding and the happiest day of your life, the time when your family meets the man you love. Like, how awful. Yeah, so it's terrible. Humiliating. It's awful. Like, yeah, just, just a bad, bad, bad start to this marriage. So, like I said, it seemed that as soon as Sean married him, he considered her his property. Um, and he was even more jealous now and controlling. She kept this from her family, but she told a friend that she felt like she was in jail, that Jerry Lee watched her all the time and even became jealous of the puppy that he'd given her as a present 
she was forced to give it away because she was she was giving it too much attention and not him not enough. God, Which, he's a freak. Don't yeah. you hate hearing those kind of stories? Like, God, yeah, I hate him the more further we get this episode. Like, oh, don't bring the dog into this, you asshole. You gave it to her. <laughs> I know. What a jerk. Yeah. So what she was, okay, so she just got married in June. She was counting the days when she'd be able to go to Michigan because Jerry Lee was booked for a concert there on August 28th. She said she couldn't wait to leave Mississippi and go see her family. I don't know, maybe at this point she was thinking, maybe I just won't come back, you know, who knows? But it had just been like a month and she just, you know, said, I can't wait to go. But she was so lonely that she decided to bring her sister Shelly down for a visit um, just a few weeks after the wedding. So it was in mid-August that she she invited uh, Shelly to come and stay until they went up north for the concert. So it would be a couple of weeks that her sister would be yeah. there, which we already know is a is going to be a um, a trigger for him, right? yeah. her sister. But I don't know. Maybe maybe he was acting nicer now. Who knows? Because at first the sister said that they enjoyed their visit and Jerry Lee was in a good mood. One of the first nights that she was there, they went to Hernando's Hideaway together. And Jerry Lee actually uh, debuted his new song for them that he had written that was going to be recorded. And I guess it was going to be released soon. Um, and he sang it for the sisters. But Shelly said that she was still being pressured by her brother-in-law to have sex. And she had to keep finding ways to avoid his advances, which is super creepy. Well, know? that must be the reason why he was had no problem with her coming to visit, as long as she didn't bring the rest of the family, right? Yeah, maybe. Maybe he thought he could talk her into it finally or get her drunk or who knows what. But it just, she just said it was just creepy and she just hated all of that. And, you know, now she was just trying to avoid him. So one day uh, the sisters were outside by the pool. Uh, Jerry Lee came out. He was drunk. He was angry. He was itching for a fight. Shelly reports this and she says he started cursing at them. Then in front of her sister, he struck Shelly in the leg and slapped her in the face. So Sean, of course, you know, horrified, gets up to, she's angry. She's saying, what the hell, dude? And then Jerry Lee backhands her in the face and then just walks away. Most likely from what people believe, there was probably already some abuse going on in, in this very short marriage. Yeah. But this, now this is done in front of a witness, her family, right? Shelly, of course, was just like shocked. She's angry. She's crying. She tells her sister she's going to call the cops. Now, this is very telling. Sean says, it, that's not a good idea because the cops all know Jerry Lee and they're not going to do anything to him. Ugh. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll see this. Um, probably like, why he was hitting her then, so. Yeah. Because, yeah, because she said and nothing's going to happen to him. So maybe she had called the cops and nothing happened. So Shelly said, okay, then I'm out of here. She got her stuff and she took off. Um, Sean went back inside the house and... Uh, he was sitting in the living room. The reason we know this is because his sister was there. His sister Linda was there with her kids for a visit. Now he's doing this even in front of his own family, oh, right? God. John yeah. tries to smooth things over with him, but he gets up and starts screaming at her and hitting her in front of his sister. His sister, you know, leaves the house with her two kids. Doesn't do anything. Just leaves the house with her two kids, right? I mean, that's kind of what you see with with stars that behave this way. Like, I mean, in, in, within history, their family just kind of puts up with it and that's what it is. They walk yeah. away and they look away and it's enabling. It I is. We call that. Yeah. Yeah. So then Sean tells him that she's leaving with her sister. Now she reports this later on to, um, forget, I think it was her mother that she talked to afterwards. 
Um, she told him that she was leaving with her sister, but he grabbed her and dragged her down the hall to the bedroom saying, you're my wife, I'll kill you before you ever leave me. So Shelly had left the house. You know, she couldn't get a ride from Sean or anything. So she left on foot and she just hitched a ride to a payphone to call home to get, you know, to get a plane ticket or whatever to get home to Michigan. <sighs> yeah. So Shelly told her mother, whose name is Jan Kleinhans, about her, you know, this abuse. And her mother said that they should give it some time. And she would call Sean later to talk about it. So this part is really, really sad because she did. She called her mother and she told her, you know, this is going on. I don't know. I don't know if, if it's the time, you know, I mean, when you think about the time in the 80s and stuff, there was still kind of this idea that what happens between a married couple is their business. You're exactly right. And, you know, let, every, let everybody cool off. Let everybody cool down. Let's, you know, yeah, yeah. I know. So she said, well, you know, give it some time. We'll call Sean later to talk about it, you know, and, and figure out what's going on and blah, blah, blah. But before that happened, on August 23rd, Sean's mother got a phone call. It was 3.30 in the morning. Sean called her mother and to tell her that she was leaving Jerry Lee. And she said, if and when I can get away from him. Aww. So Jan told her daughter that it was the middle of the night and just calm down and she'll, you know, call her in the morning. Um, again. You know, she could have just thought, oh, you know, they're having a little spat. I don't know what she thought, but she just said, you know, I'll call you tomorrow. Um, But Sean said it pretty, it's, I mean, the words made it sound like she felt a little bit desperate that this was the end and she had to get out of here. Because Sean said, I don't know if I can call you tomorrow. Whatever you do, make sure nobody calls for me here. And they hung up. At noon the following day, August 24th, 1983, an ambulance was called to Jerry Lee Lewis's mansion. The housekeeper, Lottie Jackson, had found Sean in her bed unresponsive. The EMTs arrived and by 12.30 p.m. pronounced Sean Stevens Lewis dead. She was 25 years old and had been married to the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis, which is his nickname, not I'm saying what he is, he's <laughs> the nickname yeah. killer. She had been married to the killer for 77 days. It's, and I did not know it was that short of a time before she died, which I thought was super, super sad. Yeah, she's the one wife that fought back, but she didn't take, she didn't put up with the shit. She didn't put up with the other women. She didn't, you know what I mean? Like, right. that's, I hate, you know, I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying she did fight back. Right. That, I imagine that's what happened. Yeah. They call it a mysterious death. And we're going to kind of go over some of the things that were found and also, you know, people can kind of make up their mind what they think may have happened. And I have a couple of ideas, and I'm sure you probably do too, once we go yeah. over some of these things. So this is what happened. Um, Sean Lewis was found dead on August 24th, 1983, in the guest bedroom of Jerry Lewis's mansion. And it was around noon when um, she was found. When they came in and found her, she was on the bed with the covers drawn up to her neck. Her body was still warm, but there was no pulse and her eyes were dilated. Um, EMTs noticed that the room was clean. There was nothing out of place. So it didn't look like there had been anything that had gone on in that room other than she had laid down in the bed um, and died. Right? right. But they also noticed that they were checking for vital signs and all of that at the scene that bruises that appeared to be finger marks were found on her forearm. There was dried blood on the web of her hand. Blood was also seen, um, blood drops were also seen on her hair, on her clothes, and a bra located in another room. And we'll talk about that in a a minute, um, what that was. There was also blood drops found on a lamp and a spot on the carpet. 
there was a, this is the, the strangest thing to me. There was a film of dirt found on her. So like her body was dirty. Bruises were on her arms, on her arm and hip were found. There were broken fingernails on her hand with what appeared to be dried blood underneath. Oh my God. First um, thing that somebody had noted as far as, you know, the first responders that appeared if she, it appeared as if she had been reclothed in a blue nightgown moved to the guest bedroom and laid in the bed and covered. Yeah, because she wouldn't she have been in her room bedroom with her husband? Yes, exactly. Like, why is she in the guest bedroom, right? So there were bloody clothes found in the bathroom. Um, and the bloody clothes found in the bathroom were actually found in a paper sack. Like somebody had taken them off and put them in this bag to do who knows what with. There were blood drops on a door. There was a blood spot on the carpet. And bloody gauze was seen on a cabinet in another room, in a billiard room. Not sure if that was from that or something else. So this is, like I said, the first responders saw this. But they also, later on, not too much later on, but by that evening, they had taken her body to um, the funeral home. And the people that ran it, the morticians there at this, uh, the name of it was Brantley Phillips Funeral Home, noted noted the traces of blood in Sean's hair and under her broken fingernails. They also noted there were bruises on her arm with, and they looked at even closer there and they said that it looks like there was fingernail indentions above, um, above the, the bruises. So like if somebody grabs you, you know, they really in, yeah. and they dug their fingernails in. Yeah. yeah. And there was also a discoloration on her neck. Mm. So when, again, when first responders arrived, this is what Jerry Lee looked like. They said his speech was slurred. He was wearing a bathrobe with visible blood stains on it. There was also blood drops on his slippers. He had a cut on his wrist and two long scratches from his wrist to his knuckles. Broken fingernails, blood oh. under the fingernails, long scratches on his hand and wrist. Hmm. I mean, it's just unconscionable. I understand this is the 80s, but it wasn't the freaking 50s. How did they not arrest him right there? Like, right. oh, God. Yeah. There were some red flags I think that somebody should have really paid attention to. And one of them, well, again, was his appearance. Another one is that when they talked to him, you know, after they came and said, hey, your wife's dead. It was a very strange way that this, this kind of happened. Try to go back to when the EMTs arrived. They were called by the housekeeper, a woman named Lottie Jackson. And she said, I went in to wake up Miss Sean and she was not responsive. So they went in and that's when I, you know, described how she was on the bed with the covers on her and all of this. Then they go to Jerry, the master bedroom. They knock on the door. It's closed. And because she said, Mr. Lewis is asleep. So she was asleep. He was asleep, but they were in different rooms for some reason. So they go and they knock on the door and the EMT said within seconds, and he's wearing his bathrobe already. So they said if he was asleep, he was sleeping in his bathrobe. And, you know, so it was almost like he was waiting for them to come to his door. He said, well, I didn't even know how to say it. I got to tell him that his, his wife is dead, you know? And he's just kind of standing there staring at me. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. So that was a really weird thing. I think he asked, are you sure? Are you sure she's dead? You know, and they said, yeah, we're sorry. So they said, we're going to have to call out somebody because... Like they do like a preliminary, like a little investigation or something, or just have to have somebody else, not just them taking the body away. And he said, Jerry Lee Lewis told them, well, we need to, quote, find out who killed how she died. 
So he started to say, we need to find out who killed her. Yeah, and then he stopped himself and said, we need to find out how she died. Mm. So the deputy sheriff who had come wrote that down. But again, because like you said, he's in this town where everybody knows him. He's the big deal there. Yeah, these small Southern towns, especially back then, and especially with a huge star like Jerry Lee Lewis, my guess is they would take his word for whatever he said. I'm sure he said she was drunk. She was being... I mean, that's a lot of times what abusers do is they put it back on their victim right. and say, she was being unreasonable. She was drunk. I was just defending myself and I put her drunk ass to bed. Right. And that's, that's such a cliche story, but I can imagine that that's probably what he told the cop that night. So then later that night, Jerry Lee called after, you know, her family was informed. Um, he called Sean's mother. He told her he didn't know how this had happened or why it had happened. He said they were, quote, getting along so well. But his mother said, um, no, that's not true because Shelly called me and told me that you had slapped her and dragged Shelly off to the bedroom while she was there. So you weren't getting along so well. Right. And he said that that didn't happen. And then he said this, how'd you like to wake up with your wife dead next to you? Pam said that she had been told that her daughter had been found in a different room. What do you mean? How'd you like to wake up with with your wife dead next to you? He then got very angry and said, well, she's dead and I'm alive. And she said, I can't deal with this right now. And she hung up. What a guy. Yeah. And what a guy, right? Mm -mm. Later that night, he also called Sean's other sister named Denise. And uh, Denise reports that his speech was very, very slurred. And she couldn't even understand what he was saying at first. But finally, she made out because he said it over and over and over. He said, Denise's sister's dead and she was a bad girl. And she's like, what? And he keeps mumbling, she's a bad girl and she's dead. Your your 25-year-old sister was found dead. You're already suspicious enough. And then he's calling and saying things like this. Like, I I mean, the horror and shock of losing somebody so young. And then you add that on top of it, like her poor family. Yeah, yeah. You know, basically they were saying they're, you know, they're going to say it's an accidental death. It's an accidental overdose. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But Sean's family comes and they go to the funeral home and they allow them to come in and have a private viewing of her. Jerry Lee wasn't there, didn't know about it. When he found out that they had had them given a private viewing, he went apeshit. And he, he told, yeah, he told the, the funeral home, like he just railed at them for doing that. And after that, he ordered the casket to be closed and nobody else to see her. And why would you do that? Well, I'm sure there was obvious bruising. I mean, morticians are... They they are pretty much wizards. I, I, I've oddly the South is a very strange place, and I have a feeling we have many more open casket funerals than are the norm in the North. Because I used to be married to a Northerner, and that that's not something that's done everywhere. But I actually went to a funeral one time from a man whose car was hit by a train, and they covered his head with black netting and still had an open casket. Oh, good lord! Nothing shocks me, and I know morticians are basically magicians. Um, they can, they can cover up a lot, but I mean, he obviously was scared of what they saw. And I mean, you know, family, and again, family will go in and they, they will, they will touch the body. They will hold their hand that, you know, I'm sure he was just scared more than angry, but I can also see see him just, you know, having a fit because he said, no, it's closed casket. Why did you let them look? Mm -hmm. He was his property. You know, yeah. she was his wife. As far as he's concerned, that was his property. Um, and technically, legally, he would be her next of kin. So, yeah. 
And what ends up happening too is that she's buried in his family plot. <sighs> like she doesn't even get to go home. Oh. Yeah. I, I found that very sad. Like yeah. her parents live so far away and she's buried in, you know, along his, his family, which I mean, I can see if it was a loving marriage, a long-term marriage, I can see that. Yeah. But, but is- 77 days and yeah. gosh, you know, and they don't even have, they don't even have the opportunity to bring her home. And it's not like they actually had the money to fight him. No, they didn't. They wanted to take him to court. But even if they did, like I said, technically by law within marriage, he was her next of kin. It, they probably wouldn't have won anyway, but it just sucks. That right, sucks. it does. Yeah. So this is the thing that her, his, his mother was just appalled. They go to the funeral. He walks into the funeral wearing the white tuxedo and red ruffled shirt he'd worn to their wedding just three months earlier. Oh. Really? That's not sad. a black suit. And she said, and the whole, the whole service was about Jerry Lee. It was not about their daughter. It was Everything like, he, he was a center of attention. The, the person who did the eulogy was talking all about Jerry Lee's loss. It was like, yeah. the, she said, it was like, we weren't even there. Oh. We just did not count. And my daughter didn't count. And it was just, it was, it was horrible. So let's talk about this investigation or lack of Um, The coroner did not come to the house, number one, because the coroner was out of town or something. Um, So they call, I guess this is the second. They have assistant coroners as far as I know, but go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. In this town, I guess the the pinch hitter for the coroner was was the justice of the peace, a guy named Whitley Perriman. And he came just to fill out the death report at 1.15 p.m. So within an hour or so after they found the body. He wouldn't have been an investigator. Like all he could do is come and basically give a signature. Right. He also, he also knew Jerry Lee Lewis personally. Of course. He asked, okay, he's going to fill out this report. So he asked Jerry Lee how he thought Sean died. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess that was like, if you were doing an investigation, you were going to ask everybody, but he basically asked him to know what to put in the report. Uh, Jerry Lee told him that she, quote, took some sleeping pills. And that became what was, you know, put down as far as this is probably how she died. So Perryman later would say, though, it looked as if Sean, I give a lot of credit again to the journalist who did the story in Rolling Stone, because he went and talked to all these people and found out what actually they saw that day. Like years Um, later, whether or not they admitted it at the time. Yeah, right. Perryman said, he said it looked as if Sean had been placed in the bed, that she hadn't been sleeping in it. Nothing was, you know, out of place. It was like she had been placed there. He later was quoted in this article as saying that he thought it was odd that she was in the guest room and not in the master bedroom with her husband. Well, yeah, you know. Perryman did not, he was supposed to call for a coroner's inquest. That was the usual um, process, uh, the next thing that would happen. When he would call for the coroner's inquest, when this would be six citizens that would be convened to hear testimony and determine cause of death. If it's anything, you know, that seems like a a mysterious death or something like that. Unattended death or, yeah. yeah, Right. So he said that he didn't do this because he was told an autopsy would be performed so he didn't see the need. Well, actually, don't you present the findings of an autopsy to the coroner's inquest? Yeah, maybe. It seemed like that would make more sense. Yeah, I mean, that is generally how they go. Okay. They they, they don't always do those now. They they do still do them in other countries, though, and and I know that the autopsy does come first. Now, the autopsy, I would think, would be whoever the county coroner is, right? Does the autopsy? Yes, especially in an unattended death, but yeah, not in this instance. Jerry the sheriff actually contracted the autopsy to be performed by Dr. Jerry Francisco. Now, Dr. Jerry Francisco 
was famous for having conducted the autopsy on Elvis Presley. He's a private guy. He's somebody that you pay. In Elvis Presley's case, he concluded in his report that Elvis had died of heart failure, which nobody ever really bought that. No. They knew that he was a bad drug addict. and more than likely a drug overdose, but yeah. Right. But he said heart failure, and that was what was put in the official report for Elvis's death. So Jerry Lee would actually pay for this autopsy, which kept it private. You know, all the way around, it just, it's just crazy. All the way around, they're breaking the law. Like, yeah, I mean, just, it's, it, yeah, if nothing else, it's, it's very uh, out of, you know, out of, out of the ordinary, <laughs> put it that way. Mississippi in the 80s in a small town with mm-hmm. a huge uh, famous man. So not at all surprised, but yeah, that's all against the law. That's all against the law, but okay. Surprisingly, they actually did have um, the crime, I mean, the scene of the death, where the death happened, processed the day after that she was found dead. And they said this was not out of the ordinary because it was Jerry Lee Lewis's house, that bullet holes were found in various walls and windows of the house because he used to like to shoot off a gun inside his house, apparently. Yeah, they probably didn't find that all that strange. But they didn't, yeah. you know. And, but they did find these bloody clothes in the master bedroom in that bag, like I said. They found shards of a broken glass on the floor of Lewis's, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's bedroom, the master bedroom. And, but there was no large pieces that identified what, was, what had been broken. And they also found a 9 millimeter pistol on his bed table. But Dr. Francisco reported in his report was no foul play, and he attributed her death to pulmonary edema or fluid in the lungs due to causes unknown. But he told the sheriff that it was consistent with a drug overdose. No, it's not. Yeah, I thought that was odd. I'm like, what? Uh, I can tell you this right now, which I think you already know. My mother has pneumonia, and fluid on the lungs is not necessarily caused by a drug overdose. It's, It's an illness. Um, it right. can be brought up a lot of things, but not just by taking a few sleeping pills, no. Right. So within hours after the body was autopsied, like I said, it was sent to the funeral home in Hernando and embalmed, I mean, immediately. So that was a pretty quick autopsy. Whatever evidence there was would have been lost. So. Right. Yeah. So the sheriff, um, Sheriff Sowell, another sheriff, told the local paper that blood found at the scene was due, quote, to Lewis cutting his finger on a glass. And I'm like, uh, sounds like OJ. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. And he said this is what, what, what accounted for the blood on Sean's hand. Um, the bruises he portrayed at, that were found on her body were portrayed as superficial. And he told the, the media, quote, there was no marks of any violence, unquote. Superficial bruising? Like, okay, if they were on her shins from knocking into something, but no, not where they were found. If they had bothered to ask, they have first-person account from her sister, from his sister, of the abuse that had been you know, going on that summer right? But I don't think they asked. So the blood found on the clothing and the blood found on Sean and all around the house was never tested to find out who it belonged to. So if it had been his blood, if they would have tested it, said, yeah, see, it was Jerry Lee's blood. It wasn't her blood, but they'd never tested it. People were talking and they're saying, well, you know, what the hell's going on over there? You know, how did this 25-year-old die? Because some people said, you know, we didn't know her to do drugs. Like that wasn't her deal. That was his deal. So yeah. what's going on here? Jerry Lee would say that, he, that it was suicide later on, that she killed herself, which is another thing out of left field. Yeah. But a ground jury uh, inquiry was convened by a, a Sheriff Ballard to, quote, dispel rumors of foul play. It's like, well, these are rumors. And just so we could, you know, put this to rest, we're going to do an inquiry. In this inquiry, they went by the autopsy conducted by Dr. Francisco that had been paid for by Jerry Lee Lewis. And the testimony of other friends of Jerry Lee Lewis, 
And so, of course, they ruled that the death was accidental and no foul play was suspected. So basically went by what they had already decided was the, the narrative. Right. And said that there was no, no foul play. So, like I said, Jerry Lee and his manager would both say that Sean's death was due to, an, first, to an accidental overdose. Um, okay, now this is the part where they, they get a little bit further into the story and try to make it stick. Jerry Lee would say that he had methadone in the medicine cabinet that had been there for a very long time. And he said that she probably took these pills accidentally thinking they were sleeping pills. Really? <laughs> but no residue from pills or other drugs were, was listed in the autopsy. So he didn't even like say, oh yeah. I mean, they didn't even cover their own story. Right. By saying, oh yeah, there was like residue of 15 pills. So, you know, or whatever. There was nothing like that listed in the autopsy. Right. So Sheriff Ballard again would tell reporters that Sean most likely killed herself. Now it's she killed herself. Now it wasn't accidental. It, I mean, it just keeps changing. And he would say that she was, quote, no stranger to drugs, which we know that's not to be true. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start blaming the victim. That's the next step. That's the next step. Of course. This is what the investigators later pieced together. Now, this this is funny because the investigation happened after the grand jury inquest. Yeah. (laughs) Which makes no sense. But at least there was some kind of investigation that tried to be put together. And this, again, was from the Rolling Stone article that he had gone and, and talked to these people and to piece all this together. Right. So this is what um, supposedly happened, according to witnesses, is that some workers from the store arrived at, the, at Jerry Lee Lewis's mansion to install some drapes. And this was a little bit before noon that day. They knocked on the door and waited for almost a half an hour before the housekeeper, Lottie Jackson, arrived at the house. She hadn't been there. Oh, and, and, so she yeah. Well, that's she wasn't there. So only the people that were in the house was Jerry Lee Lewis and Sean. Yeah. So they were trying to get in because they were supposed to put these drapes up, but they had to wait. Nobody would come to the door. So um, Lottie came to the door right before noon and tried to get in using her key. But then Jerry Lee came to the door and let her in. Um, he then sent her to the master bedroom, reportedly to awake his wife because the drape people were there and she needed to deal with that because, you know, that's woman's work or something. That's actually what she said. (laughs) And Lottie then returned to the workers and asked them to wait in the den. Now, this is after she's gone to the bedroom, to the master bedroom, not to the guest bedroom, okay? So she's playing it cool. Yeah, so she comes back to the workers and says, tells them, please, you please wait in the den. There's something, we're dealing with something here. And this is allegedly what happens next. She goes into the master bedroom with Jerry Lee for about 15 minutes. And then ambulance arrives about 15 minutes later. So apparently at that time, they called the ambulance. When the ambulance arrives, like we said, Sean was in the guest bedroom, not in the master bedroom. Mm-hmm. It's alleged that Lottie Jackson redressed Sean in a nightgown and helped clean her up while Jerry Lee placed her in, helped to place her in the guest room because the bloodstained clothes belonging to Sean were found in the paper sack in the master bathroom. Oh, so that makes sense. So she was originally in the master bed. Yes. Yeah. And also, and this again was much later, deputy, a deputy named Macaulay filed a supplemental report a month after the grand jury verdict that stated he saw Lottie cleaning up the master bedroom that morning after he knocked on the door there for several minutes trying to get in. Mm. He said that she came to the door and he could see her 
cleaning things up and putting things in, you know, bags and whatever. Now, this is Jerry Lee's version. He said that they were, that him and Sean were watching TV in the master bedroom when Sean went to the bathroom, came back and said that she took some sleeping pills. He said he was concerned and asked how many, and she said not too many, and then they went to sleep. He also said that she kept, he kept waking up during the night to check on her. Why? He also later on, again, made another statement saying, and I told her, if you took too many, I'm going to call an ambulance. And she said, no, I didn't take too many. So then he says he woke up when the Drapers arrived, and that's when he saw Sean in the bed. Her lips were blue. Now he's saying that she's in the bed with him, right? He says he couldn't wake her. He was angry at that point and grieving, who knows what. He smashed the wall with his hand and cut his thumb. And then he started walking her up and down the hallway, shaking her, trying to wake her up. That's how he says she got the blood on her. That was his blood. You know what? Some of this smacks is true. You know, it's that whole thing of every lie has a little bit of truth. Remember yes. how he told his mother that he woke up in the, how would you like to wake up, wake up in the bed with your wife dead? Mm-hmm. Um, he probably beat the shit out of her, did a lot of that, but mm-hmm. probably didn't think that he'd killed her, but forced her to go to bed. And then he woke up the next day and um, tried to revive her and walked her up and down the hall. Wondering so, about that discoloration on her, her neck, like we've heard about this in a lot of cases, the strangulation, you don't know how long or how much pressure, and everybody's different. So who knows, you know, it, what, what happened there? So then he, he says he laid her on the other bed and then he called to Lottie to call the ambulance. But like I said, the ambulance driver was called by Lottie. He met her at the door. She took him to Sean's body. They then went to the master bedroom. The door was closed. She knocked and that's when she said Jerry Lee was asleep, but he had come to the door already in his bathrobe within seconds of their knocking. And then she told him, remember the EMT testified to this, told him that Miss Sean couldn't be woken up, but he already knew that. Yeah. So this whole that thing was staged. Later, then yeah, he's contradicted himself. Or yeah, and contradicted it's, him. and it's really for him. And it's definitely yeah, it's definitely staged, right, for the EMTs. And that's when the EMT told them that she was dead. But here's the other thing that the reporter found again by talking to Sean's family and friends, which nobody else did, is that we know that Sean called her mother that night, but she also that night called her ex-boyfriend Scott. The phone was answered by his sister. He was not home. Sean asked his sister about Scott and wanted to know if he still loved her. This is so sad. That's so sad. And then what Scott's sister uh, reports to, to this journalist is that Sean asked her to meet her alone on August 28th at the concert that Jerry Lee was coming. Again, she's still planning on going up to Michigan for this concert and she's looking forward to that. That's the whole thing. But she's now asking Scott's sister to meet her there at the concert um, when she goes to Michigan. She's reaching out for help from anyone. From anyone. And she she keeps saying, you know, you promise, you promise you're coming, you promise you're coming. She said several times she kept asking her, now you're you're, going to come for sure, right? And then she said, yes, yes, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, Sean said that she would call back the next day to make plans for them to meet when she went to Michigan. She was in the middle of a sentence with the girl when the phone went dead. This was the night she allegedly died. So what does that tell you? Remember? He probably snatched the phone. I mean, nobody else was there. Nobody else was at the house, but her and him. Imagine how lonely and scared she was. Yeah. 
Now, here's the thing that I kind of sussed out from other things that I found. A part of it was in this article and part of it was in something else I read. One thing that was in the coroner's report, but this is, this is weird because there was a large amount of fluid found in her stomach. Well, that's different than around your lungs. They don't like seep through. That's not how that works. Right. So, and, and somebody had wrote and said, you know, the amount, and I didn't write down the amount, but the amount was like a large amount for a person her size. Now, is it possible that she was held underwater, possibly in the pool? And this well, is what I've done that before. So yeah, it, there's this mysterious death of the of the fourth wife, right? Yeah. yeah, in the pool. Now this is what I wonder because her sister Shelley had said that they would be out by the pool house, and the pool house was just like another house, and yeah. it had a phone. It had. Shower. I'm wondering, was she in the phone using the phone in the pool house when she was talking to Scott's sister? That makes did, a lot of sense. Did he catch her on the phone, heard what she said, or maybe didn't hear what she said, but just got, you know, upset, angry, jealous, whatever about it. He caught her and then he dragged her to the pool. It might answer why the, there was dirt on her body. Yeah, I had not gotten to the part about the fluid in her stomach, but just the dirt, like it made me wonder if she had tried to run out and he caught her and they fought in the grass or the dirt, but that makes a lot of sense too. She just picked up the phone in their bedroom she yeah. had to go somewhere to get away from him to actually make that call. Um, she might have tried to wait until he passed out or thought that he passed out, but because yeah. everything everything was, you know, I thought everything could have happened in the house. Whatever happened could have happened in the house, you know, if something happened. No, of course we don't know. Her clothes were wet. They said they had blood on them. There's no indication that they said that her clothes were wet. Yeah, I don't know. They didn't say they didn't say that. But it's so weird because I thought, okay, all of this could have happened in the house. You know, something could have happened. Yeah. They could have gotten a fight. You know, it's possible she could have said, you know, I, I'm ending it. I'm going to take these pills, whatever. That's also possible. But I just kept going back to the, why is there dirt on her body? And of course, the bruises and stuff, that could have been from a fight. And then like you said, you know, people get in a fight and she could have now felt distraught and taken something and ended her own life. It's very, it's possible. It's possible. You have well, to. And it. also going back to that pulmonary edema, um, maybe he was kind of couching probably if there was fluid found in her stomach, there was probably fluid found in her lungs. Right. He had to drown her. And instead of saying that, he, he acted like it was this pulmonary condition of fluid around the lungs, which I mean, is kind of cheating. And at the same time, admitting that there was fluid. Do you see what I mean? Because you got to, I guess you have to account for it or something. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so that was the whole thing where I thought, Okay, the fluid in the lungs. Well, what does that have something to do with the pool? Because we already have a history of some weird pool stuff going on. Wouldn't you, you know? kill to actually see that autopsy? Or because yeah. I, up until like the fluid in her stomach, I was wondering, did they X-ray her head? You know, a lot of times that happens with abuse victims, and it doesn't mean that it's not still murder. But you know, he's clobbered him over the head, and he thinks the fight's over, and they put her in the bed, and then the next day he wakes up and she's dead. Right. Um, so I was curious about that. She had a skull fracture since they found blood in her hair. Right. Uh, God, there's any number of scenarios, honestly. But there the, really is. Yeah. Water in her stomach is crazy. And, you know, if they had done really done an investigation, there might be more answers, but there's not. And so that was the thing that I just was like, yeah, you know, that's another, that's another, you know, theory that could have happened is that, because I just keep going back. There's always one thing in these cases that it just, Sticks it just kind of nags in my mind, like, why is there dirt on her body? And then you said you could have, you know, dragged her 
she was trying to run out and he dragged her. And that makes sense too. But I also think, well, what about the fluid in the lungs? What is that? Could that account to that? She dragged her to the pool and, and held her underwater. You know, there wouldn't be a lot of marks on her except for... It would be the fingerprint marks on her arms. like. And they said there was discoloration on her neck. So maybe she wasn't strangled, but maybe she was held... You know, you hold the head down that way. Hands, because he had scratches on his hands. He had scratches on his hands. That she she had been in an altercation with somebody. And so did he. So did he. He should have been photographed that night. Her body should have been photographed. Like, there should have been a full-on investigation. Yeah. It's unconscionable. And like I said, this wasn't the freaking 50s. Right. It would have been okay then either, but I don't know if it's stardom or being a small town or what it was. But yeah, they, they, they totally failed this woman. Yeah. And I think it was a combination of, and he, all of her, everybody in the town seemed to be his friend. Like all of the, the big people in charge seemed to be friends or had they had done favors for them or, but because the thing is that they all knew that Jerry Lee Lewis was a pain in the ass. He was constantly wrecking oh, his yeah. cars into trees and, you know, founding behind his will, you know, dead ass drunk. And they would just like wake him up or take him home or that's what they did for him. And they're like, oh yeah, it's Jerry Lee. And everybody knew that. There were stories like that. We just take care of them and we take them home and we don't charge them and we don't give them a ticket or whatever. And that's it's- not all that unusual. And again, I hate to keep comparing it to OJ, but how many times were the police called to the house and OJ was told to cool off? Yeah. How many reports did they have? And, you know, we have her on 911 saying, you know, you guys come out every time you don't do anything. Right. You know, and it makes you wonder, had they been called before for this sort of thing or, you know. Right. That's what always kills me about the whole OJ was set up theory. Bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah because fans that loved him, that came to the house and always gave him a slap on the wrist. Like, yeah. I've, I've never believed that. So. But all of, all of a sudden, everybody's out to get him, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. It doesn't yeah. make I mean, in this case, I think it's even worse. Like, they didn't even try. They didn't even try. Later on, he, there was an interview with Jerry Lee Lewis, and he's saying, you know, it's just really sad, you know, that she killed herself, and I didn't, I don't like that I don't believe in that. I mean, it's like, dude, shut oh, up. So religious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, it's it's just uh oh, it's a sickening, you know, because uh it basically stayed on the record as a as a suicide. Or like an accidental suicide, basically. Mm-hmm. They they kept going back and forth in it and they said it was a drug overdose basically. And it could have been accidental and it could have been intentional that they didn't right. really know. So eight months after her death, he married for the sixth time. Of course he did. To Carrie McCarver. And they were married from 1984 to 2005. Wow. He first, this is what's so... Again, a long, long marriage. Yeah, a long marriage. But he first met Carrie when she was 10 (gasps) at a Toys for Tots benefit. And she said, I knew I was going to marry him someday. I'm like, oh my God. He's a pedophile. There's just no (laughs) word for it. Like, oh my God, I missed that. They met again when she was 18 and they started seeing each other. Well, I did the math and that was the same time he was seeing Sean. Oh, of course. Of course it was. So they had one child together, Jerry Lee III, born in 1987. He, like we talked about his money problems, he filed for bankruptcy in 1988. He was $3 million in debt with $2 million owed to the IRS, which doesn't seem like a lot now, but I guess it was a lot then. Um, I mean, mean, it's a lot, but it's not like a lot, a lot, a lot. It's not like Nicholas Cage a lot, but yeah. No, it's not like Nicholas Cage <laughs> money. Yeah. He moved to Ireland in 1993. It's believed to avoid the tax man. He said that's not true, but it's funny because as soon as they resolved all of that, he moved back to the U.S. in 1997 yeah. right after. Yeah. 
all of that was taken care of. Um, He married his seventh wife, Judith Brown, in 2012, and they are still married today. She, believe at the time they were married, was maybe close to 30, and he was 70. That's practically elderly to him. Oh, yeah. But he was really elderly at that point. Um, On February 28th of this year, he suffered a mild stroke, but he's still kicking. And the son of a bitch is still alive. He is now 84 years old. And I imagine that is why Judith is still alive and not divorced. <laughs> well, it sounds like she's kind of like his nursemaid in a way. Yeah, you, with that big of an age difference, that's basically what you're signing up for. Yeah. He's like, this is the one I've been waiting for my whole life. I'm like, dude, what's <laughs> old? Shut up. I can't oh take it. God, yeah, he's trash. If you look her up, look anything up about this, it says his fifth wife died of a drug overdose. Everywhere is what it says, which we don't even know this because it's not even, that's not even in the report. If she, if she had taken all these pills, wouldn't that be in her stomach contents? Yeah, exactly. Well, if they were able to find water there and that whole housekeeper thing, that gives me Marilyn Monroe vibes. You know how there was like hours between the housekeeper founder and the actual police were called. You know, I've always been one of these people that went back and forth on whether that was suicide or murder. Like, there's a really interesting long four podcast on that. But yeah. the thing that's so, so shady is why are you so beholden to this man? Is that housekeeper a millionaire now? Like, yeah. Well, they did say that she had been with him a really long time. She wasn't like, she had been somebody who had worked for him since, you know, he oh, was, I'm sure. you know. So her loyalties apparently lied with him. Yeah. Well, um, they always lie with the person with the money. Well, yeah. That's, there's yeah. that. For sure. And, you know, but it's just sad that her story didn't get out there at all. And, and that that's, that's basically her legacy in the media is that she died of a drug overdose and she was doing drugs. Um, yeah, it's very, very sad. And I just feel for her family because of that, because, you know, they have a different story to tell and nobody, nobody has asked them. Let's see how long this guy kicks, kicks around. (laughs) He'll be a (laughs) hundred. Yeah, he will. It's always guys like that. Like I said, they'll outlive us all. So even if, let's say that he wasn't responsible for her death, she was despondent after being married to him for less than three months enough to kill herself. Does that say anything about how, you know, he was as a person and how he treated his wife? Well, yeah, like let's, let's play, let's play devil's advocate. Maybe he didn't, you know, shove her head in the pool or the bathtub or wherever. Well, why didn't he call an ambulance when he, when he rolled over and saw her, her blue lips? Exactly. Uh, None of that, all of that smacks of a lie to me. Like I said, again, within every good lie is a little bit of truth. I think he knew damn well that he beat her up. I honestly, I still lean towards, you know, head fracture. There could have been a fight even in the pool, maybe, you know, between the two of them. And I think he was just shut the hell up. Let's go to bed. And then when he woke up and found her that way, thought he could awaken her. Like that to me, for some reason, smacks of truth. Yeah. It's at that point, I think it was just damage control. Yeah. And maybe waiting for the, for the housekeeper to come because he needed help cleaning up in the climate, the, you know, what happened and, um, figuring out a story. So that is Lewis' story as we know it. And I just want to, once again, thank you for being, um, being on the show today. I really appreciated your perspective. I'm doing stuff with you. This is great. Yeah, no, it's always fun. And I know the listeners always love when we, you know, we do something a little bit out of the ordinary here and have a little discussion with somebody who really knows true crime. And to that end, I want to make sure that people know that you're podcast southern fried true crime is a weekly podcast correct yes every friday and it's a different true crime case every week 
And so if you guys are saying, oh my gosh, Esther's going on a break. There's plenty to listen to. Because <laughs> Erica's been doing this for a little while, right, Erica? Yeah, I'm close to hitting my 80th episode. It feels wow. I can't believe it sometimes when I look at the number, but yeah. I think we have some crossover. I often hear from people and they, they're like, well, you heard about you on Once Upon a Crime. And yeah. I just love that. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, because it, it's kind of the same format that that I, you know, I do as well as where you're going to tell the story with all the research and scripted mm-hmm. from beginning to end. But then again, of course, always focused on crimes from the South, which there's yeah. obviously quite a few. <laughs> yes. That's my whole shtick. Justice here is very Southern fried. And uh, one more thing, I really hope that we get to be booth buddies again at CrimeCon. Yes, CrimeCon, I'm so excited. Yeah, I was I was uh, right next door <laughs> to Erica at uh, at CrimeCon last year, which is really, really fun. And so I can't wait. So I'm so oh. glad to hear that we're both going to be back there this year. And uh, that's going to be in so, Orlando. Hmm, I know, I'm so excited. I know, it's going to be great. So thank you once again. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll be talking to you soon, I'm sure. And if, I'm definitely be seeing you in uh, Orlando in the next yes, summer. Yeah. Well, thank you too, Esther. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Erica Kelly from Southern Fried True Crime. Make sure to check out her podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. There's only one more episode left of Once Upon a Crime for this year. That will be out next week. But also remember, you can get more bonus content on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash once upon a crime to get more information and to join that'll do it for this episode of once upon a crime until next time be good to one another Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.